Hello everyone and a little extra introduction by me again uh, because you'll know if you've listened to last month's episode that we shuffled the episodes around a bit so uh, this month finally you'll be getting the episode we promised you all along with Andrea Palandri uh, about the Marco Polo. Uh, So again please ignore my counting it is wrong this is not the fifth episode but the sixth episode uh, and I hope you'll enjoy it. How would you say I'm not used to that work. Hello, Agus Falcharesh to our fifth episode. While we open up the bottles of champagne to celebrate this milestone, please enjoy a conversation with Andrea Palandri in which we talk about Marco Polo in Ireland and how a castle in a lake proved to be a vital clue in his research. Bon Sultos! Hello and welcome to our fifth episode of the School of Celtic Studies podcast Nianza and today I am joined by Andrea Palandri who is uh, like myself an O'Donovan scholar at the School of Celtic Studies and who specializes in early modern and modern Irish. Hello Andrea, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Nika, how are you doing? All right, I'm very excited about this to hear more about the Marco Polo uh, because uh, the listeners will probably not know but we started our O'Donovan Scholar at the same time uh, and we've shared an office uh, for about one and a half year I think until Corona hit and we both uh, moved into different (laughs) geographical areas Uh, so it's good to talk to you again uh, and pretend we're, we're in the office uh, and uh, and having a little chat about uh, about our work. So, well, mainly your work in this case. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, I ask you questions in Old Irish, um, but you don't have to answer in Old Irish, thankfully. And uh, we always start with the first question, which is a bit redundant, uh, but uh, uh, it's just tradition by now because we're at the fifth episode. And that is... Kesht. Kia the hofanam shifain. What is your name and what brought you here? So, Andrea, take it away. <laughs> okay, so um, <clears throat> my name is Andrea Palandri. I am um, half Italian. Um, my father is Italian. My mother is from Scotland. Um, I was born in Italy. I was reared first in London for about nine years before we moved to Italy. Uh, oh, wow. Very international. So I, my teenage years were in uh, in Venice, um, whereas my sort of primary education was in the in London. Mm-hmm. And um, so when I went to Venice, I, I did the Liceo Classico, the classic, uh, the classic, the high school for classical studies. Which um, so I was introduced to Latin and Greek, mm-hmm. and uh, and did a lot of ancient and medieval history, and. So So that was one side of how my interests in medieval and ancient languages started. All right. But then um, I suppose through my mother's connection to Scotland, I started exploring because I'm I play music as well. I play well. I started playing classic music, but then I play traditional music. You're actually quite uh, you know 
I would I would say almost famous, aren't you? Know? <laughs> I would say that. For your, I, there's definitely a bunch of YouTube videos of you around uh, doing some fantastic fiddle playing. So if the listeners want to check that out, just uh, Google Andrea Palandri. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so I uh, playing through playing music, I suppose, in tradition music circles, first in Scotland. Um, well, I suppose Scotland then got me introduced to Irish music. All right. I yeah. quickly met uh, people from Irish speaking areas uh, in Ireland. And when I was about 17, 18, started um, getting very interested in, in the Irish language. Mm. Um, so was so there, that, you were, yeah. were you introduced, uh, were you playing or learning traditional, I suppose, in, in the beginning, Scottish fiddle in Italy as well? Well, I was playing? sort of going for summer courses in, in Scotland. Oh, right. oh, cool. Yeah. And coming back then to Italy for the rest of the school year, I suppose. And, 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 and you know, just uh, playing the music by myself and then going maybe back for for a music festival at some stage in the winter, if I could. Or, oh, lovely. Uh, and um, so sort of the, the, the world of uh, history and and latin and ancient greek which i was doing at school and which i was interested in was starting to collide with my interest in uh traditional music and and in the uh let's say the the culture and the, the language of the west of ireland and the west of scotland mm. and um so then i i went to when i went to university i chose a course in cambridge called anglo-saxon norse and celtic uh yeah anglo-saxon norse and celtic studies yeah so i did um Anglo, uh, so that's Old English, Old Norse, Old um, Welsh, and well, Middle Welsh and um, Old and Middle Irish. And I also did a course in Modern Irish while in Cambridge. So I did that for three years. And by the end of that, those three years, I'd started to really um, direct myself towards Old and Middle Irish and, and Modern Irish. Yeah. You're actually the first on our podcast who has been educated i think outside of ireland so uh, it's good to you know tell people that there's this fantastic center of celtic studies in cambridge as well uh, yes. uh, where yeah. you can do well, this bachelor and masters sorry that makes two of us i suppose because... well yeah me too but i haven't been interviewed so <laughs> oh, yeah. although i do uh, try to put utrecht in here uh, uh subtly now and again but uh, <laughs> yeah so so uh, did you well, what made you choose Cambridge to do? Was it the combination of all these languages or uh, was it because you were homesick for, for Britain? <laughs> well, I suppose, well, uh, perhaps some of the story that I didn't tell was that as a teenager, teenager I also became very interested in um, Scandinavian um, sagas. I think right. I went through most of the Icelandic sagas when I was... 16 or 17 well you know the, the main ones yeah yeah the Laxdaila saga and uh, Njal sagas and Kormak that could those saga, I really enjoyed reading them and so I was interested in that and I was interested in Old English I suppose because I'd seen the sort of um I'd understood by doing Latin and mm. and Greek and uh speaking Italian the kind of um um understanding and et etymological depth that learning the 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 earlier stage of a language can give you to the understanding of your modern of the modern oh, right. yeah. language I suppose. Yeah. so i was interested in exploring that for the other native language that i had which was english 
because yeah. oh very cool yeah. i'd done this through italian in in in, in school and I suppose so. when I was coming to the end of my teens, part of that was, uh, part of the decision to go to England was that I wanted to learn about uh, the history of English. Mm. And um, and also, however, try and find a course that did the classics of uh, Britain and Ireland. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, so that, I think, is encapsulated well uh, in the course in Cambridge. It was a you, great fit for you, yeah. Yeah, you you get a great. Uh, it has a lot of. Um, it has those languages on offer. You yeah. can you can study yeah. all the linguistic context of. Well, you get a, you can get a broad understanding of the linguistic and historic and literary uh, environments of um, Britain and Ireland yeah. during, from you know from the dawn of literacy really in the, in those islands yeah. too. Yeah to the mid medieval period, which is, which is what I wanted. And I got it. And <laughs> I, so I followed from there for, to, uh, to university college Cork to do a PhD in early modern Irish. Um, in, uh, um, so in the Marco Polo, Marco Polo's. Aha, here, here he is. <laughs> Our Marco Polo. Yeah. <laughs> Marco Polo is, uh, is an individual who I've been, uh, I suppose, uh, most people who live in Venice, obviously everyone knows about him. Hmm. But um, if you're if you spend some time in Venice, whenever you whenever you leave, I think your ears prick up whenever you hear the names. Oh, what's that about? So I, right. I, I've heard about the text, an Irish translation of. The Can Marco you Polo. maybe first explain for for those of us who are not from Venice? Uh, it might be a bit rusty on the who is this fella again? This Marco yeah, Polo, what exactly yeah. is or what he's famous for? Yeah, so Marco Polo is uh, was a um, an Ita- he was from an Italian uh, a merchant. Uh, family of, from the Venetian Republic, mm. born in 1254, I think. And um, <clears throat> he, um, along with his father and his uncle, um, was one, uh, well, along with his father and his uncle, he left Venice for um, China, mm-hmm. uh, exploring the uh, all the area, I suppose, that was most of the area eastward that was covered by the Pax Mongolica, the sort of the, the Mongolian empire and the, and the peace therein, which meant that you could now travel All right. uh, through these areas that were once uh, sort of split up into different hmm. kingdoms and empires. And um, so he, he left as a, I think he was 17 when he left oh, Venice. Oh, wow, yeah. And he came back uh, in 1296 or seven. Um, and um, and when he came back, he he wrote about what he saw, hmm. and he actually worked for the for Kublai Khan for the for the great Khan Khan um, while he was uh, in uh, in China, and um, so he he's it's one of the first detailed accounts of the East from a Western perspective. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the text became very famous in the 14th century. Uh, was became very popular, I should say, around Europe and was uh, mm-hmm. translated into a large amount of European languages. I'm not going to say all of them, but <laughs> uh, and uh, importantly, it was translated into Latin, which of course was the la- was the language that mm. most uh, 
literati could read yeah. and understand and, and share the text in. And it's from that version, that Latin version, uh, translated by uh, a Dominican friar, Francesco Pipino from Bologna mm. uh, in the 1310s, that the Irish translation is then made at the end of the 15th century in uh, southwest Cork. All right. Yeah. So we c- there's quite a delay from when Marco Polo was writing in the 13th century and then the text becoming more popular in the 14th century. Uh, yeah. And then you have an Irish translation in the 15th century, so it had quite a, a long lifespan as a um, as a text. Yeah, it is. Uh, but um, let's remember that uh, it's it's at the real tail end of the 13th century. Yes, that, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. 1298, and then and then the Irish and the Latin translation is you know the real beginning of the 14th, so maybe around 13, um, 1310, 13. I can't remember the exact date, but it's in the, I think it's the second decade of the of the, of the 14th century. Right. And so from then on, you have this Latin translation that is getting uh, spread around Europe. Yeah. And, um, so, yeah, the Irish translation, I suppose, is. Um, it's it, you might think it is it is late, but in a, in a European context, a lot of a lot of translations are happening at the end of the 15th century. Mm. So I think you have the. Uh, the German and Portuguese translations, I think, are all right. Cool, time. yeah. And you have and you have various recensions, uh, and you know, adapt adaptations, sort of, um, um, yeah, abridgments and ad- adaptations. Right. Of- yes. Yeah. 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 Also, because the the med- late medieval or medieval concept of translation is f- is quite different from the concept that we call translation. Uh, in yeah, some it, cases, it covers, yeah. covers what we would. Yeah. Maybe describe as not just translation, but also yeah. reinterpretation. In, yeah. Cultural in, translation, in, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, not in every case, but in, in some cases. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So then we have this Irish text from the 15th century, uh, a translation from a Latin text uh, about Marco Polo, qu- kind of encompassing your your uh, international personality as well, your your Italian roots and your love for of Irish uh, and the Celtic languages. Uh, and then uh, what made you um, want to study this particular Irish translation or what did you do with it in your, uh, well, in your PhD in Cork? <laughs> Shout out well, to Cork. <laughs> I had uh, for my uh, third year um, dissertation in, um, in Cambridge, I'd studied, I'd done a study of the translation of it in the it's an Irish translation of Lucan's um, mm. um, the civil war of uh, Caesar and Pompeo all right uh, which was it was a famous Latin um, epic poem uh, written by Luke Lucan in the first century AD and that was becomes becomes also it's a it's a text that has a lot of um, scholia attached to it in the in the medieval period right and, um an irish translation is made of this uh at some stage well at some stage in the late middle irish period perhaps maybe even the early, the early modern irish period the manuscripts are all early modern hmm. in a way. but it's a, it's a huge um it's a huge um uh, text very long uh and that certainly is a readaptation and reinterpretation in many respects of the text, and an enlargement and a right. sort of amplification of many of the um, 
the themes uh, in the text and the details as well. So I did my dissertation on that and I sort of became interested in what you could discover from uh, looking at a text that had been translated. Mm. Um, I mean, it's very revealing when you, well, it can be very revealing. You can, you can see, well, why, you can ask yourself, well, why did this, was this detail changed? Yeah. So yeah. It's got to do with something, is this something to, is this uh, got something to do with the original text from which the, the translator was working? And if so, where was that original text from? So can we trace how that text arrived? So that's an interesting thing you can find out. Uh, also, or maybe, maybe they, maybe the 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 translation, uh, the details are changed because uh, because the the translator decides to. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you? Is that is that done for political reasons? Is that done for, you know, what? Why is that? Is that done so it can match a particular detail in the in the culture or in the, let's say, the, uh, the literary context. Mm, the target uh, audience of a text. The and, target audience. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that you can sort of um, deduce, I think, from looking at a text that's been translated. Yeah. Not always, yeah. but a lot of the times, especially in these medieval translations that are uh, often free from the original text and, and take many liberties. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was interested in, in that sort of, uh, in that, um, in that uh, phenomenon, I suppose. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so after having done a dissertation on, on that text in Kakarga, I was interested in, I see, well, couldn't this be done for the Marco Polo as well? And so that's, that's what sort of held me to look at the Marco Polo for, you know, at the start. Right. And this Parco Polo uh, in the Irish version, is it a long text or in the well, Latin version even? It's a, it's a quite a long uh, text in Latin. In um, the Irish text is about, a, I think it's, um, it, it's in terms of word count, at least, it's only about 30% of the original text. Oh, right. Okay. So the Irish version is much shorter. It's much uh, shorter. Yeah. yeah Which is interesting not... already, probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is an interesting self. I mean, the same decision was not made. You know, a contemporary translation of a text that has similar themes is uh, the translation of uh, Man Mandeville, which happens in 1475 in West Cork as well by mm. Finino Mahuna. And uh, that is a much more literary translation word for word. I mean, right. that also takes liberties. That's a translation from English, by the way, not from Latin. Oh, that's but also interesting, not, yeah. It's not a, it's not a, uh, let's say, uh, it doesn't, uh, it's not a, a, a much more succinct yes. version of the yeah, text. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the, the, the Irish translation of Marco Polo is, uh, so it, it's, it's much more succinct than mm. the Latin. The Latin goes into great detail, uh, detail like the Marco Polo's original text um, goes into great detail for a lot of the countries. Whereas the Irish one, skips a lot of countries right because i mean the, perhaps one of the things that can be misunderstood about the marco polo is that you might think it's this text about a, an adventure of this venetian who you know leaves venice and tells you all about his adventures mm. strange things it, he's seen and well people he's yeah, met or yeah so you you get the strange things he's seen but it's more in the in it, it's sort of constructed 
in um, the form of a list. All so right. the first, first 14 or so chapters of the, of the Marco Polo is Marco Polo telling about his uncle and his father's trip. So they had gone to China before. Right. And then they come back and then they go with Marco Polo, the 17 year old, for the second time. Right. Yeah. So Marco Polo, the first 14 or so chapters tells of this sort of the travels of his father and his uncle. Mm. And then you get the beginning of a list of territories. So you say Asia Minor is like this. Uh, Armenia, sorry, Armenia Minor, Armenia Major, um, mm. and Turkey, and, and it goes through all these countries, sort of almost ge- by geographical sort of... Right, the way he things. passes through them. Perhaps, but also maybe he's he set them out in the way that he thinks. Maybe that wasn't his original trip. Right. But, but he's set them out this way because that's how he thinks that they're geographically orientated. And it's actually quite exhausting after a while to try and because obviously for a modern mind uh you know we've all gone to school and looked at maps all our lives Mm. all these countries most of them we have names and capitals for them yeah and trying to fit this then onto a medieval understanding is quite frustrating at the beginning yeah yeah because you know it doesn't really match up (laughs) well where's this and they're all smaller regions i suppose that now are in bigger countries um so um yeah the, the, the it doesn't really read as an adventure story after mm. maybe four the first 14 chapters which is about the father and the uncle after that it's a list right. of countries the 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 religion that they have the what some customs um that are being uh, the, the 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 local customs and mm. an eth- like an like an ancient ethnography in some ways yeah uh, so uh telling of all these people you know, they're, um, they take an infinite amount of wives or <laughs> in this country, uh, it's the wives that, uh, um, that, uh, choose the men and this, you know, th- these right. kinds of things. All these things that stood out to him or, yeah. Also there are Christian miracles. All right. Yeah. Know, the amount of Christians that are in this country, the amount of, mm. uh, Muslims, the amount of, people who worship fire that are the Zoroastrians um so it's more of a list like that and I think that um you know when it, this was translated into Irish the this list was made shorter by right. just removing a lot of countries yeah. <laughs> and maybe put and also putting details from one country into the other so not actually interested in in the scientific yeah just in the good stories yeah but in the interesting details i think yeah because the the thing about the marco polo is you know he actually did go to china and what he you know he's doing Mm. his best to actually document what he's seen what he's heard and it can be used uh, for example there are details about how much how much horses cost in in this really and this kind of you know so you do wonder was he making these notes perhaps because then in the future people from venice and, and merchants from in the venetian empire could go and trade and get horses you mm. do wonder if that was part of the, the mentality of, of making those kind of notes so but you know when that's being translated in in ireland i don't think those details are as important no yeah and perhaps there's also uh well actually not perhaps there's actually an a an, 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 
An example of this in the text is, um, you know, um, medieval, you might know that salamanders in medieval uh, literature and bestiaries are, are sort of mythical uh, creatures who can live in fire. All right, yeah. Medieval uh, medieval bestiaries, by the way, are a great read if you're ever bored. Uh, there's lots of fantastical beasts in there with super cool qualities. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and this was the common understanding of what a salamander was. Maybe the, mi- the word mythical isn't, isn't correct because mm. that was the understanding of what yes. a, of a salamander. It, it was this kind of lizardy lizard of the Far East that could uh, live in fire. Mm. Uh, but Marco Polo explains that you know, while he's walking, going, what, that there is this region where they have these mines of asbestos, which can be, um, and the mines, the mountain where this, these mines are is called Salamandra or something All right. like that. And so he's saying, well, maybe the myth of the salamander comes from a confusion of this uh, these these mines where you can get asbestos, which it, through which you can make clothes that are um that are fireproof oh right and, yeah and describing the, the the process of making this fiber from from the stone mm. or the mineral and um so when this is so he describes this in in the Marco Polo in his text but when this is translated into Irish they revert back to the old understanding of right. of what uh, or or to the sort of the the mainstream, maybe. Yeah. yeah the mainstream medieval understanding of what a salamander was right yeah and they ignore the the sort of the new information that sort of might explain mm. they go for the clickbait uh... <laughs> yeah they go for the 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 one that they know best yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. perhaps correct well not correct but uh, have the text conform to um, their own understanding yeah. of what the yeah, East yeah. was. Yeah. Um, so there's there's some of that in the text as well. Very cool. In translation. Yes, and I think it might be nice to uh, to know because you you wanted to find out what the difference is between the Irish version of the Marco Polo and then the Latin versions of the Marco Polo. But of course there there wasn't one Latin version <laughs> that you could look at and go. Oh, so this is different because you were telling me uh, one day in the office how you traveled all through Europe uh, looking at Latin versions of the of the Marco Polo. Can you maybe tell tell us a bit more about that, how that uh, how you went about doing that? <laughs> yeah. So um, one of the first difficulties I, I found um, as soon as I started working on this text was that there was no modern edition mm. of the Latin uh, translation of Marco Polo. Was now, there any edition, uh, or what was the youngest edition that you that you had at your disposal? So um, there was a printed edition that was printed alongside the uh, the Czech translation of the text. Oh wow! Which is also fifteenth <laughs> century, uh-huh. and that uh, so there was an edition made of that at the end of the nineteenth century, I think, and mm. and um, and there's a Latin there's a transcription of the Latin text side by side with the um, Czech one. So there's that, but that wasn't really, uh, it was difficult to use. Mm. Thankfully, as soon as I started uh, working, I got in touch uh, with um, um, a number of Romance philologists working in 
Universita di Foscari in Venice. Um, so Eugenio Burgio and Samuela Simeon, who have had been working on um, sort of the the wider uh, textual tradition of uh, Marco Polo's travels. And in that project, they had uh, made, well, Samuela Simeon had made a complete transcription of right. whole text, uh, the Latin text. So this was it's an unpublished uh, digital uh, transcription. Mm -mm. So that I was, even before certain the, 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 the PhD, I got in touch with these uh, this this group, and I was able to access this. Uh, oh, that's uh, very good. And yeah. it's all online since. Oh, excellent! Okay, we'll put a link in the podcast notes. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so it's all online since, and now actually since then, there a project I think has begun. Well, I know a project has begun in uh, in the University of Innsbruck uh, with. All right. Um, Professor Mario Clare, I think is, well, his name is Professor Mario Clare, and he's um, will be starting a project to create the first uh, edition, oh, critical edition excellent. of Latin Very uh, good. of Pipino. So, you know, if had I started this this work maybe in ten years from now, <laughs> years from now perhaps there wouldn't have been those problems. But when I started, there yeah. was a bit of that problem. So, what the problem was is that. In order to understand what the Irish author mm -hmm. had adapted from the original, yes, you have to understand what the original is. Yes. So, because the Marco Polo has so many uh, different trans mm. uh, versions, how many are we talking about? Do you remember? Um, Roughly. <laughs> talking about so the, the entire. But pre 15th century manuscript corpus of uh, Marco Polo manuscripts in all languages is of about 140 manuscripts. Oh, wow. Mm. And the Latin ones of the Francesco Pipino tradition are including the abridgments and the translations from those Latin ones are about 64. Right. Still an awful lot to go through. <laughs> yeah. So the Latin ones are about, I think, 60. Or 59. Mm. I can't actually remember the exact number, but around that number. Yeah. So, um, the 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 first, uh, I suppose, um, thing I had to look at was was this a translation of of a was this this just a simply a direct translation of another abridge, abridgment mm. of the text that already exists and that connection just hasn't been made because nobody's been looking at these manuscripts. Yeah. So in order to suppose rule that out, I started looking at all the um, all the manuscripts I could get my hands on, <laughs> and uh, I started. I had to try and work out a sort of a stemma, because until I understood that, yeah. I couldn't really draw conclusions safely. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And say, well, you know, this looks to be an edition of the Irish author. Of course, it could always still be the, the case that it's a it's a direct translation of another abridgment that, that we just don't know we've lost. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. My suspicions, however, it is that it that it is the Irish author that has made a lot of the mm. uh, uh, of the um, uh, changes. Right. Yeah. 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 Because there is no surviving abridgment. You've seen them all. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, I saw 
I definitely saw all the abridgments and I saw 47 out of all those, I think, 60 Latin manuscripts. Right, um, yeah. Wow. Enough to get a, a good idea, I suppose. The ones I didn't see, I had a good idea what they were, you know. Mm. Well, you know, I, I kind of took, I said, you know, there's only 13 left. Some were in Russia, some were in the States. Yeah, some, yeah. Some there are just, limitations to what you can do in your research. Some yeah. Of them collections, some I just, I just couldn't get my hands on. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I did, I did my best. And I have a stemma codicum of all those in um, an article in Edu last year. All right, very cool. We'll put in a link uh, to that as well. Uh, and basically, a stemma codicum means that you have determined a sort of family tree for the tree the text in these manuscripts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this also shows that uh, the Irish translation, because there are certain details, for example, that, that match up. Mm. It's sort of like working out a barcode. Right. Uh, have a, say you have a, so I, what I did is I took one chapter, the description of the Great Khan's Palace, which mm. is of about a thousand words in the Latin. And I copied that same chapter, uh, plus maybe another few details here and there in the text that I knew were different in the Irish text to that of the majority of the Latin mm. manuscript. Uh, but I concentrated on these thousand words. Uh, um, and I copied these from all 47 manuscripts. And I was looking at then the group of manuscripts that had the, um, the details which were most similar to the changes mm. made in the Irish Marco Polo and the ones that didn't. So, I mean, you're looking for, um, obviously there were a certain number of changes in the Marco, in the Irish Marco Polo that were not made by the Irish author yes. because of mistakes in his exemplar, copying right. mistakes in his exemplar. Yeah. And a lot of these you can't see in the translation, but some of them you can. For example, uh, numbers, which always get mixed mm. up in, in copies. But what I found is that actually, um, they, whereas numbers do change in copies, there are still patterns that you can you can see. Oh, so right, there's yeah. a group of maybe five manuscripts that have the same numbers changed in the same way. So you think, well, these probably come from all the same copying error. And it's not just those numbers, they line up with other things. So that's what I mean, like a barcode is that mm, you can, yeah. you can, if you, if you, if you give a, uh, like a bar to every copying mistake, and then you can line up all the manuscripts, you start to see groups. Yeah. 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 So for one of the things that, uh, that is in that Edo article is a uh, difference. So there's a, a, a section in the, um, in the, Latin that talks about a palace um, in the middle of a um, locus, which in Latin means uh, a location, mm -hmm. a place. But in some uh, trans uh, copies, they mistake the off for an a. All right. Lacus, which means a lake. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a very copies, different story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a completely different picture. Yes. You have the, the palace is not uh, in the middle of a place, but in the middle of a lake. So therefore, yes. you an island in the middle of the lake. And, you know, it's a different picture. Yeah. And this strikes you because in the in the Irish translation, it's in the middle of a lake. Right. Yes. And in most of the uh, Latin 
trans- Latin texts that are copied in England, it's in the middle of a lake. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. But most of the, uh, the um, copies from mainland Europe uh, made in, you know, in France and mm. Italy and, and, and Spain and Germany, it's in the middle of a loch. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was one of the clues that you can you can start to look at. Yeah. I saw when I found that I thought that was a bit of a eureka moment, and, yeah. and of course you need a lot of other evidence to th- you can't just base it on that. Yeah, but it's a very good example because it's a big it's difference. Of, it's of a... the kind of thing you're doing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, so so that's so that you know that's so that was a, a big part of the PhD was was mm. that was right. looking at uh, try, well trying to determine I suppose because very little had been done in the Marco Polo. It's such a basic thing is, is to understand what is this actually translated from? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we know, can we figure that out? And I think I, I, I did a good deal. To, <laughs> good to man. Show, yeah. Well, you know, to show yeah. what group of manuscripts it derives from. Yeah. 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 And from uh, and now scholarship can take it from, from there. It's yeah, a big well, help to know. Yeah, you can say if there's a detail in the Marco Polo that you're not sure about, hmm. you think, well, this is odd, this is strange, this this would be this way. Let's just double check. Yes. Yeah. In yeah, the yeah. in the manuscripts that are most closely related, that there's not a similar change, and that the, so there you can rule out that the change is made by uh, a, a mistake in the Latin. Yes. Yeah. See what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you can start to say, well, it's not in the Latin. It may be therefore a, a, a decision by the Irish translation. Yes, yeah. Uh, translator. Yeah, 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 yeah. And talking about the Irish translation itself, because we've been we've been doing a lot of uh, Latin now for this uh, Celtic Studies podcast. But how mm. many manuscripts are there of the Irish translation of the? Just Marco? one. Just one. All oh, right. And do you well, know? Well, just one medieval one. Yeah. Right. Yes. Do you? Uh, is that contemporary? You think to the translation, or is it later? So this is my. This is another. Uh, chapter in the PhD oh, is this um, <laughs> trying to determine so the the manuscripts to which the Latin manuscripts to which it's most closely related are copied at the beginning of the 15th century uh, so that m- probably gives you an indication of maybe the time in which the 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 copy that is now lost that was used to translate the Irish Marcopolo was made. Right. Maybe was made around the same time that these other manuscripts of the same group, which contain the same copying errors. Yeah. So that's the beginning of the 15th century. So you have about from the if you're if you're starting from there, you can say, well, there's about 75 years until the, the manuscript in the Irish manuscript in which it's it's found was, was written. Uh but I think you can go further than that. There's a section of um the Marco Polo that describes a, a battle between um, uh, it is Kublai Khan and his uh, uncle and his um, um, cousin and uh, they rebel against him and they have this big battle and, mm-hmm. and lots of people were killed it's a big battle in the in the in the, in the Latin text in the Irish translation, this battle is made bigger. All right. And uh, it's got a bit of. You remember when I was saying that the Irish Marco Polo reads like a, a list of territories. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true, but it is also it's got these sort of other bits 
where there are battles and it's describing so it might start from describing um a city and say mm. oh and here there was a great battle or in, right in, so little in anecdotes about yeah, yeah. And so it sort of um goes into more detail mm-hmm. so one of these is this battle and in the irish translation this battle is very much expanded not only that but uh, as you would be as you're i'm sure you're familiar with there's a quite a specific uh, narrative style uh, in medieval irish literature mm. started from the middle irish period i, sp- I suppose to try and uh, to it is used to de- to depict battle right yes and uh, so, what is can you explain the style uh, so it's the best examples of uh, where you can find this this style are uh, mm. uh, the, the the war of the Gael against the, the foreigners uh, or um, uh, which is uh, you know, uh, there are late middle Irish early modern Irish well late middle Irish texts mm-hmm. and um, um, so they're use of lots of adjectives alliterating adjectives right uh lots of them one after the other yeah so they all start with the same sound with the that's what yeah. alliteration is basically and and very gory right they go into a lot of detail mm. and into a lot of um um i suppose description very detailed description about uh you know what the using these adjectives what the soldiers are wearing the the cries of the of the dead and, and this kind of thing using these alliterative mm. passages so obviously this is not a latin uh, narrative style but this narrative style is only used in this battle this is expanded in the irish translation all right yeah so my the point i'm getting to is that the author seems to have put particular emphasis on this part of the battle and there's also little sort of um uh speech bits between the can and his messengers and things that don't exist in the latin so there are additions hmm. and the the explanation i give for this is that in the life of the patron of the book of this more finin macar and there are uh, there was an episode where his um cousin and his wife's uncle if you like kathleen um uh, gerald uh, fitzgerald um uh, rebel against um let's say their interests and and um well rebel against finin's father so finin's cousin rebels against finin's father right and finin is imprisoned for i think nine years before he he regains back the lordship of candivide mm. um so this is a fundamental part of finin's ascension to power in in in, in west cork and um my theory mm-hmm. uh, which i support with this uh, sort of allegory in the marco polo is that the translator uh, was or the author of this translation was translating with the finin macaria as a uh, as the patron in mind ah yes yeah 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 and he was adding to this translation in order to highlight the parallels between mm. his patron and the life of Genghis uh, of uh, Kublai Khan right yes and um i suppose both as a way to to flatter patron but also in a way to 
just uh, you know, there, there's a, there's something there that you can take advantage of to make an, a, a parallel. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I think that that's the reason. Well, that's one of the reasons. That's the why how I explain that expansion. Yes, and that would give you a very sort of nice defined period in which the translation might have come about. Yeah, it puts it in. It puts it in. Uh, at the same time with the manuscript or yeah, yeah, yeah. only just slightly before which is you know 1478 to 1506 yeah 1505 sorry which yeah is let's mm-hmm. let's talk about this manuscript because this is not just any manuscript it's a manuscript mm. that has acquired recent fame has it not <laughs> yeah so this manuscript was until recently in the private ownership of the duke of devonshire mm-hmm. uh, lord cavendish and uh, it was donated um last year to ucc congratulations to ucc that yes. is a, an amazing, uh, amazing thing to be given or donated. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So it's uh, it's in UCC now, and um, it's the Book of Lismore or Laud Bekardiri, Laud I can't say Laud <laughs> It's certainly a, t- a tongue twister. <laughs> I think I, I could say it quickly like that after having spent this amount of time on it. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's um it's in that manuscript and uh, we know that that manuscript was in uh the monastery of Timaleg when Mihailo O'Clady uh used it in uh, 1629 mm. Mihailo O'Clady the famous uh, 17th century scholar traveling through Ireland collecting all uh, all kinds of old texts and uh, uh, manuscripts yeah yes. yeah um and um, there's a poem in it to um, Finin. Oh, that's interesting as well. So you have a link to uh, this particular potential yes. patron. Yes. And one of the scribes uh, says he's writing for Finin. Oh, and, excellent. Um, and he's part of a medical family that was active in West Cork, whose mm. great-grandfather uh, also wrote medical texts for the great-grandfather Finin. So Ennius O'Callanoin is his name. And the other scribe who's anonymous, who's the scribe of our text, um, is, I have argued in an article in Celtica, mm-hmm. also the scribe of the um, the uh, marginal notes saying that the, the the lives of the saints in the beginning of the, uh, the manuscript, which he penned, were uh, written for uh, the for the married couple who commissioned the manuscript. Oh, right. That is yeah, yeah, yeah. taken yeah. to be Finine and, um, and, and Kathleen. Yeah. So what uh, the, the Book of Lismore is very famous for these texts on saints. Is that kind of uh, the mix that you find in that manuscript? So this, for example, this story about Marco Polo and then also some hagiography stories about saints. Is there is that the collection or is there more to it? Oh, there's a, it's a huge manuscript, lots of mm. uh, things so it starts yes you don't have, in, have to give us the fullest no, <laughs> so don't worry because <laughs> there's i think too many texts definitely too many texts yeah. just to recite off but but i mean you have so lives of saints you have a lot of um uh religious texts mm. uh, and then it goes into uh medieval history i suppose so you have the history of the longobards you have um the history of charlemagne's wars in spain oh yes yeah. And then you have uh, Marco Polo. Then you have 
Kahirim Hyalhoin Hashil, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which is a text which uh, is a sort of propaganda text. Uh, so, although Makarhiriach is a branch of the greater Makarha family, they still are part of the Makarha group. Uh, and then uh, you have Agal of Nashanoroch, so the great Fenian, um, the collection of Fenian uh, tales. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a, got lots of different sorts of texts in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. It's so a nice, it, yeah, it reflection. Of... Between 4th and 78, which is the date that Fenian. Uh, becomes Lord of Cadibre mm. and um and fifteen oh five when he was when he died. So that's yeah. that's how you're dating the manuscript. My suspicions it's is that it's it's in the earlier part of those years. Yeah. Yeah. And which is also interesting um because fourteen seventy five is the date of the translation of I mentioned it earlier as well, Finino Mahuna's translation of Mondeville in West in uh, West Cork mm. in Ross Blin. Um so it's interesting to see these two texts being translated. Uh, if I'm correct, yes, and it is yeah, written in similar. In, 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 if the Marco Polo is written in, in Cork, and uh, as I have suggested, then it's very interesting that these two texts are are translated um, around the same period, hmm. in more or less the same area. And you yeah. wonder, um, could one have been a response to the other? Right. Or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or not a response, but a you know an expansion on 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 what was yeah what had been yeah. previously written yeah very interesting, and now you're kind of uh, interestingly you're you're moving towards uh, the more modern era because at the instant you're not only working on Marco Polo, uh, but you're also working on uh, something called Glor. Um, which is, uh, well, it's it's in a way also dealing with history because they're very old recordings of Irish speakers, um, uh, but it is modern Irish. So how what got you going on that? Well, um, yeah, I suppose um, going back to the very beginning when I said, uh, you know, my interest in music had, uh, had perhaps first brought me into contact with the Irish language, that has continued and... Um, um, I continue to try and uh, perfect and, and, and keep speaking uh, mm-hmm. and learning about modern Irish and modern Irish dialects uh, are of particular interest to me because sort of the period in which I've been working uh, on, on which I've been working on uh, the period on which I've been working yes most very good yeah the um, uh, six six to seven years now, I suppose, since beginning the PhD, six years, has been early modern Irish. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is also the period in which the modern dialects start to, start to appear. Right, yeah. But the, 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 there's, there, it's very difficult to, to see that in these manuscripts. Mm. Um, because, I suppose, because early modern Irish is a, is a, in many respects, for certainly the language of, of, of poetry is a stylized uh, standard. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the language of prose then uh, can be often so uh, archaic. Hmm. 
it's, it's very difficult to, to see any uh, dialect phenomena. However, uh, because my um, my uh, project in, in Dias has been to create a, a modern edition of the Marco Polo, I have uh, looked at a number of other texts and manuscripts uh, in um, from the same period in order to try and to try and uh, figure out what the what I suppose the appropriate editorial policy for mm. for Marco Polo would be and base that off a broader understanding of um, 15th century scribal tradition in our yes. Irish yeah, yeah. scribal tradition. So um, this has led me to to look for. So I, I mean, I've looked at uh, specifically the, the the Charlemagne text, which also exists in the uh, survives in the Lismore manuscript, the UCC manuscript, as it's now not Laura mm. and um, uh, and that survives another three manuscripts. That same version survives another three manuscripts from the end of the 15th century. So they're all contemporary, but they all contain slight sort of differences uh, in not so much even in spelling, but sometimes it can be things like um, the addition of a, the addition of, um, uh, for example, the, the addition of the relative, um, um, a relative pronoun, mm. noch, which is, is, emerges in the, in, in the early modern, modern, in the middle and early modern period. Uh, so that you find that in, in one manuscript and there are other differences. Um, for example, uh, the confusion of um, the first and second plural. So uh, a per, mm -hmm. per, per, um, possessive pronouns. Oh, right. Possessive. Yes. Was a pronoun so um, in modern Irish, or, or, mm -hmm. and vur or vur or ur in Monster Irish. So, um, uh, but in in some of these early modern manuscripts, you find ar and ar in the first and second right. plural, but you don't uh, in other manuscripts, you find them still distinct consistently, mm. which means that you know something's happening, there's a decision being made either. A decision being made to 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 just to diversify them or to have them the same, and you do wonder because that is a modern distinction of dialects as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you have monster distinct, you have Ulster distinct, but Connacht uses you know o or or for the first and second. Um, you do wonder is that a a marker? yeah a reflection so, of today so i suppose where i'm going with this uh, <laughs> is um that kind of attaches into my interest in modern irish mm -hmm. and, and looking at the emergence of the modern irish dialects and the institute has um a, a, a very precious collection of um recordings made mm -hmm. by members of the institute from uh the early 50s to the early 70s of Irish speakers from all over Ireland and I suppose since starting in the institute I've, I've sort of uh, with the help of some interns who have worked in the summer um, 
recatalogued and digitized, uh, completed digitization of this collection. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And this kind of thing. So hopefully that'll be available in the, in the near future. Yeah. And thankfully, we still had uh, one of those old, um, uh, I don't even know what they're called, on which you could play the old tapes. <laughs> yeah, a reel to reel tape. So um, yeah. I don't actually know what it's called myself, a reel to reel machine. Or... Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So it's, you know, um, going uh, or basing us on the the previous the two podcasts ago when we were talking to Anne-Marie about preservation and digitization uh, and how she started photographing manuscripts uh, with the help of floppy disks that you can't even read anymore at the moment. It's so important to keep these uh, these documents up to date and, and transfer them into new formats. So hopefully... <laughs> They'll go up soon and we can listen to some ni nice Irish from the 50s uh, from yeah. various areas, I think, uh, as well. Yeah. They're very broad ranging. Yeah, so uh, they are. Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. For example, we have County Loud uh, and uh, County Loud, County Clare, large parts of, of Cork. Mm. That, no, large parts of Cork, that, uh, some parts of Cork that aren't even covered by the um, Lingui Linguistic Atlas and Survey of Irish Dialects by mm. Wagner. Uh, so, for example, there are areas near, well, particularly interest to what I was talking about, Tim League and the Book of Lismore, there's uh, somebody speaking from there, which is very interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Something to look forward to. And mm -hmm. uh, then we'll move on to um, to one of the next questions, um, which is. Kest. Uh, whether, uh, whether life outside academia inspires you it is not from study that you have taken that um so does does life outside academia inspire you i suppose it does with um well the whole start of your career really was you playing the fiddle and and uh, appreciating the music so i suppose that's one example uh, in which that Definitely. happens i mean um um i the amount of Irish you can learn from just spending a few hours with people who speak it mm. every day and who've spoken it all their life. Uh, and that's nothing to do with academia. Mm. Um, you know, it's always humbling. You can come with all this knowledge of dialects and manuscripts and <laughs> grammar and the, uh, you know, the, how, how, how the language has changed over the past thousand years. And um, and I think you can, you know, that's a different kind of knowledge, but I think it's definitely complemented. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And will always be complemented by modern speakers uh, living, you know, the, while the language is living, mm. uh, there's so much to learn from people who, who have it uh, yes, yeah. in the live language. Yeah. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in Corcoghine, just spend spending Chatting. time with people <laughs> and spending yeah. lots of time and you know playing cards and going for pints and this kind of thing it's nothing to do with uh with academia but you know yeah. the, the the main pool to that is um the irish language yeah 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 that's very beautiful and then of course music, music yes is yeah always I, I i hope i'll always play music and, and that's uh always a uh, you know, it's got nothing to do with academia, really. Well, the, it's not the way I go about what I'm interested in is ac academically is not music. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? 
but uh but uh um it's it's always a a source of inspiration and and uh a welcome change in the daily mm, that's also important yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to do something entirely different to uh, yeah. yeah to clear your mind yeah and um one of the other questions is kesht uh, to what place is your road? So how do you see maybe the future of, of the type of research you do or maybe even your own uh, future, what kind of research you would like to do in the future? Do you have any plans for that? Or Well, um, yeah, I think uh, certainly exploring, is, uh, in the next few years anyway, exploring uh, the... Um, the potential of certain early modern, modern Irish texts for uh, looking at the emergence of Ooh, uh, yeah. modern, the modern dialects. Very exciting. Not modern dialects, but dialects that have since been lost. Mm. Um, for example, um, I'm looking recently at the work of a of a scribe called Taigwari Erdoin, from whom we have four manuscripts that survive from the 15th late 15th century. And, uh, you know, there are a number of, of uh, things that, that set his work apart from other contemporary scribes. Oh. Some of them are stylistic. Uh, some of them are uh, perhaps um, linguistic and, and dialect, you know, uh, uh, some are orthographical, um, orthographic. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, these um, things like that are really interested me at the moment, really interest me at the moment. Yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I'll, I'll pursue that for the next while and see where that leads me. Um, and then hopefully I'll, I'll be able to do some work with uh, the the recordings as well. Yeah, um, that would slot in there nicely. It would yeah, be amazing uh, if you can bring, bring these two together. things together. And uh, yeah, that sounds very, very cool and very, very innovative, uh, which is uh, important. So hopefully. that's also something to look forward to. Um, but that's, I suppose, all the questions uh, I had for you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share um, with the listeners? I suppose that's it. I'd say they've heard enough of me by now. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps not. Uh, but we'll, uh, I happen to know there's a nice uh, video of you online talking about the Book of Lismore as well. So we'll put in a link if the listener hasn't heard enough of you. Uh, there's a couple of more links uh, uh, where you, uh, you can be heard talking about uh, these uh, fantastic manuscripts. Uh, as well as, I think... Um, a talk you did with Anne-Marie O'Brien of ISIS uh, at uh, Cambridge, I think, about uh, digitising manuscripts. So that's uh, we'll put that in as well. So in that case, uh, I would like to thank you very much. And uh, I hope uh, everyone will join us again next month uh, when we interview uh, Barry Lewis uh, and we'll talk about medieval Welsh. So something different entirely. All right. Thanks very much. And Slán. Thank you very much, Nika. Slán. I did, I did blather on, didn't I?